Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlay, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This is a podcast from Minute Media. Just a heartfelt thank you uh, to... Steve and Sandy, and of course, Billy uh, and Alex too. She, everybody, the Mets are very precious to them. Uh, the fans, uh, they're precious to me. The things, it's a, it's a great charge to keep that, that we have ahead of us. And uh, I just want everybody to know that uh, uh, it's going to be a priority, you know, from day one to put a product out there that everybody can be proud of. You know, there's going to be people when we're on the West Coast uh, staying up to one or two o'clock in the morning to see how the Mets did or do. And, you know, I just want everybody to embrace that responsibility and, uh, uh, very excited about the, uh, potential for things this season and beyond. And, uh, you know, just about, you know, Steve continues to eliminate excuses that we might have for things we can't do. I'm very excited about the, the analytical department and the things that they're going to bring for us to give us hopefully an advantage. And, uh, and all the, we're, Billy and I and, and Sandy are starting to put together the coaching staff. We'll take our time, and it's just a, it's got the potential to continue to be the great place that it is and was. Uh, so, you know, not a lot of lip service. It's, uh, it's kind of a show-me situation, and um, I just want everybody to know that, the, you know, the Mets are going to be uh, something that's very precious to the people that, that uh, we bring in, and um, it's a – it's a great responsibility that uh, 
I and we will take very seriously every day. And uh, there's ebbs and flows to the season, but uh, the consistency of, of how we go about our business and the people we surround ourselves with and how we treat our, our each other is going to be special. And I've missed being part of a team more than anything, and I'm looking forward to being a part of the Mets team. I'm very honored here today. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, December the 26th, 2021. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you can just show an Apple podcast, Spotify, now Amazon Music, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com and of course let's welcome in our great partners the fan-sided podcasting network and check out the good folks over at risingapple.com merry christmas everybody hope everybody's doing well and uh yeah i was thinking about maybe doing a couple of shows in the can over the next uh, two weekends and sure enough for new year i definitely have a great show for you we talked about doing something to kind of look at Gil Hodges and his election into the Hall of Fame. So that'll be coming. But after sitting down and really uh, marinating on uh, the Buck Showalter press conference, I decided to talk a little bit about that. There's some rumors about Jeff McNeil and possibly he being on the block. I'm not too happy about that. And uh, yeah, the holidays ended yesterday, but... Maybe we could start looking at some holiday gifts in January when the lockout ends. If it's January, do the Mets have more money to spend? It's up in the air. Mike Puma over at the Post thinks the Mets might have more money to spend and might be able to make a splash or two. And if they trade Jeff McNeil, they may have to. So anyway, a lot to get into. But let me start out. So I was uh, watching over the holiday the old movie, uh, 61 Asterisk, with Barry Pepper the old Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris movie, and I haven't seen that in years. And why do I bring that up before we start talking about Buck Showalter and the Mets? Well, Buck, as you, if you saw the press conference, I mean, he pretty much held court with the media for an hour. And I think if you go back to all the press conferences that the Mets have had, unfortunately, the multitude of press conferences they had between Carlos Beltran and Mickey Calloway and Luis Rojas and Brody Van Wagenen and... Even recently uh, with Billy Epler, they um, they weren't clean. I mean, Billy Epler, I thought, did a great job. Of course, they tried to rope him into some controversial conversation. None of that existed with Buck Showalter. And I've always talked a lot about the agendas in the media and how they craft the narrative. And here we are, and I'm watching this, this film by Billy Crystal. And maybe this is a bit of a non sequitur, but it does get into the whole Buck Showalter and why I think... What you saw on, uh, what was it, Tuesday or Wednesday when he came out and, uh, and, and, and was introduced to the media is so important. Even back then in the early 60s, in a time when there was still some journalistic integrity and newspapers were so important 
because radio sports talk radio was years away from being a big play and yeah they had sports talk shows but nothing like no, nowhere near what you see i mean it's like the dinosaurs and throughout the whole show you saw how the media took sides in that home run chase spun narratives tried to ruin one guy's life basically and really pushed a, an agenda through all the way to the point where they got the commissioner of baseball involved in it by putting the asterisk next to the home run record, not wanting for him to break Ruth's record, how they only wanted a certain type of player to break Ruth's record, being Mickey Mantle. And I'm saying to myself, this is the New York media in 1961. In 1961. Think about that and in an innocent time and the knives that were out. And I think they had mentioned in the, in the, in the film how there was like 14 newspapers back then I'd love to see the list. I mean, I, I don't think the New York Post existed back then. It was probably called something else. Who the hell knows what it was called? But be that as it may, nothing's really changed in, you know, at this, what, 60 years, 70 years, whatever, how many long ago. It's been it's a little over 60 years at this point. Uh, nothing's changed because the media still has an agenda. They still try to spin the narrative, and they're still out to kind of get people in in uniform, except it's done a little bit differently now, and... To a certain degree, it's done through social media, and it's not done as well. Uh, it's really transparently done, and I think people are starting to get smart to it. But what you saw, which was so important, and, and I'm not going to sit here and belabor the whole Buck Walter situation because, let's face it, I've talked about it for the last, I talked about it leading up to when the search started, about why I thought Buck was the right choice for the right time. I talked about it when he was announced last weekend about why he'd be a good choice. You could go back and listen to those two shows. But... I think you saw in words, and, and Buck himself said when he was introduced, this is all talk until there's show me. It's the old don't tell me, show me. And I thought it was imp impressive how he understood, and I said this all along, that the person that comes in, whether it be the GM and the manager, who come in here and take on this humongous task, this team that has this yolk around its neck a team that hasn't won since the mid 80s that has had numerous heartbreaking disappointments that has had embarrassing moments that has had the knives pointed at them for so long that plays in the same town as an iconic franchise that even when they make mistakes that iconic franchise they seem to still get the benefit of the doubt they needed someone that could understand what they were getting into and when buck showalter goes out there and says he wants to make sure that those that are up at two o'clock in the morning watching the mets because it's so important to those fans to stay up late and be tired for work the next day that they're proud of what he's bringing and that he understands the importance of the job. That's a guy that gets it. You saw it off the bat, direct and honest, show me approach. He was serious. There was a purpose. He was comfortable in his own shoes. Even had a sense of humor. He tried to poke a little fun at himself here and there throughout the press conference. But the most important thing is... Yeah, he's giving you things that he believes and how they're going to go about certain ways of running the organization. But it's he himself said, just I'll have to show you. Words don't matter. I always talk about the old big time coaches, you know, whether it be, you know, the Davy Johnsons, the Billy Martins, you know, you got guys in other sports like Pat Riley and Bill Parcells, and they're legendary in this town. And the one thing about even a guy like Pat Riley, if you read about what he's all about or what he was all about when he was a manager, that 
and and Buck talked about this is that it's really about the needs of the team. Now you could say, look at guys like Parcells and Riley and so on and so forth, you know, Davy Johnson at times. Everybody at some point would chew their team out or discipline their team. And, and to a certain degree, guys like Riley and Parcells were known as taskmasters. And they were. But at the fr- forefront of any of the teams, especially a guy like Riley, who I thought masterfully was able to bring a group of people together, even though it was in a different sport, the principles all apply, is that you start the season off and you basically make a covenant with the team. What do you want to be? It's not about what Buck Showalter wants. It's what the team wants. And look, it's going to match up because no one's going to say I don't want to win. And he's there to make sure that the guys that are there, as he uh, already said, he was excited about some of the names that were already on the roster, including those that weren't. Wonder who that they're talking. Wonder who he's talking about there. But first, you all know I'm part of the Fan Sided Podcasting Network and a huge NBA fan. I've mentioned the Knicks before. I mean, you've heard it. With that, Fansided has something special for you. I really wanted to share it with you. The Knuckleheads podcast brings on some of the best NBA players past and present to have totally unguarded conversations about sports, culture, and basketball nostalgia. For the last seven years, former NBA players Quentin Richardson and Darius Miles are doing the podcast. I remember Quentin Richardson from his Knicks days. Guests this season include Kevin Durant, Jason Tatum, Sue Bird, and DeMar DeRozan. They also invite special guests, high-profile athletes, musicians, and entertainers to get brutally honest about everything from current events to untold stories from the golden era of sports and culture. Named for the -the on-the-court celebration they made wildly popular, this unfiltered, hilarious, and surprising podcast is like playing NBA 2K with no fouls. Check out the Knuckleheads podcast and let them know that Mike Silva from the Talking Mets podcast sent you. But it's about building this covenant with the, with the players. Uh, it's about then holding them accountable to that conversation. So then it's not about Buck Showalter coming in and being a taskmaster or about dragging winning out of them. It's about just setting the foundation about this is who we are, this is what we believe in, and here's how we're going to go about business. And anybody in that group that's not about that, they'll be gone. So it is a collaborative type of thing, which Billy Epler has talked about, collaborative with the players. The whole thing, which is funny, is that he had to address the analytics. It's almost like the analytics guys have become this radical political group that you have to kowtow and cater to because they're so insecure about their position in the game and they so much want to run things from the shadows. And I don't know which column I was reading, but it's it was a great quote. It was probably in a Kevin Kernan column or, or somewhere, somebody out there said, the problem with a lot of these young analytics guys is that they're the ultimate armchair quarterback. So easy to be an armchair quarterback after the fact. And they really have never had their stuff been held accountable to in front of the media or the newspapers. They could be wrong 10 times out of 10. And because they believe they have science or they believe they have uh, data behind them, they never really ever have to answer to anything. Because in their minds, well, the next time it's going to be right because it has to be. And that's not really how always things work. I mean, the fact that Buck Showalter had to prove to you, a guy that's been about information, attention to detail, that helped build an organization like the Arizona Diamondbacks from scratch, that he would use, he, he would use analytics and all the information at his disposal, is, is ludicrous. But he did, because he knew he had to quell that concept. He knew he had to show, 
and I'm sure he did throughout his interview with Epler and Steve Cohen and what have you, that he's willing to take this group or this group of, which is now 30 plus members in the Mets organization, take their work and apply it. But the best part is, is he's talked about, and whether it be on the MLB Network special that I had mentioned with Bob Costas a couple of weeks ago, or even during the press conference, Buck talked about holding people accountable and challenging them to their theories, not just taking the information, but, you know, really going out there and say, okay, well, why do you think this? Why does this pitcher have to come in at this time? Why does he have to be pulled after 80 pitches? Tell me more than just, well, this is what the batting average after X number of times through the lineup goes up. What I really liked, and this has been ultimately what the problem in baseball has been, is that Buck talked about how all the different facets of the organization, and now there's a new one that's kind of burgeoning, performance science, which is really keeping players healthy. Performance science, scouting, analytics. They're all there to serve the big league club, including the manager. They're all there to serve the big league club and to get wins. Not one of those individual departments or the individuals in those departments are there to exist for themselves, although I'm sure there are individuals who believe that they're more important than anything else. They're all there to provide a piece to an end game of winning ball games. And to think that a manager who's been in this business, I mean, coached under Billy Martin, I mean, think about how far out Billy Martin is at this point. Played in 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 the Cape Cod League, actually with a Mets uniform back in the 70s. A guy with all that experience can't use information and can't apply it to the game of baseball, like I said for weeks, that's absurd. That's absurd. He absolutely can. And the best part is you could tell Buck is not about excuses. He talked about how Steve Cohen and how the Mets right now, with the behavior they have exhibited in free agency, they're trying to get the best at every position, the best in the front office. They want to eliminate excuses, which have been legitimate. Reasons and excuses are sometimes a very thin line but very legitimate where they can't get things done. He knows he has a short period of time to win. He even talks about it. He's he's got pretty much a a good outlook on on the whole thing. Talked about the shelf life of managers. But I got to tell you, and you don't want to coronate anybody after a press conference because that is absurd no matter who they are. But Steve Cohen, who interviewed Buck at his house, along with his wife, who clearly his wife is very involved in this organization because she was part of the interview process. If you read Black Edge, that shouldn't surprise you. But if there's going to be one guy that Cohen could use to bridge the gap between what the Mets were and what they want to be and maybe win in the interim, this could be the guy, not Sandy Alderson. Sandy Alderson's a good guy to learn the ins and outs of baseball politics. He is not the right guy, and I said that from when he was first hired. I thought it was the most uninspiring first hire, but I understand it now. I understand why it had to happen. But this is the kind of guy that could come in and teach Cohen, this is how you run an organization. Because not only has he done it, he's done it multiple times, and he did it from a team that was ground zero in the Arizona Diamondbacks and got them to 100 wins in less than five years. From creation and thought to 1999, 100 wins, And yeah, they won a World Series two years later without him, but there's a lot more to that. This is a guy that even talked about music to my ears, and Kevin Kernan talked about this in his Ball 9 column, The Leadership Gap, about how sometimes winning at the minor league level is important in order not only to develop managers or future managers, but also to develop players. 
Maybe Buck could look at who's in this organization and spot out. Maybe the Mets could begin their own pipeline so that the next time they need a manager, because let's face it, he's in his mid-60s, he's not going to manage forever, that maybe they could develop their own guy. Maybe that guy would have been Luis Rojas, but the timing was off. It would have been great if a guy like Rojas could have maybe learned under a Buck Showalter. Obviously, we know why that didn't happen. But this is a guy that could talk to the owner, could influence with Epler in the organization, true change into a modern team that not just relies on analytics, but relies on scouting, relies on old school principles like winning and communication and all the things that through the years, I think, have been lost since we relied so heavily on data and made it seem like only the science part of baseball can rule and matter. That's how an organization can develop and evolve in a meaningful way. Not through Washington, D.C. type bureaucracy like Sandy Alderson will bring. Look, he was important. He was a guy that could go out there and, and make the, the sale happen and navigate Cohen through the commissioner's office and navigate Cohen to how baseball worked year one. I'll tell you what, out of all the people on that call, Sandy seemed to be the least involved in the conversation. I know that he's involved in the interview process, but I will tell you, you will see. He talked about fading away in the uh, couple of years after he came on at his initial press conference a couple of years ago. I'll tell you what, you're going to see Sandy Olison, I believe, fade away into the back end quicker than you think. And I believe, and I predict, and I think this will happen, is Buck Showalter will become a transitional, important figure in this team's history. If he's as good as I think he will be, and he won't just be about the field and the manager and winning, he's going to look at the whole organization and share his experiences throughout the years about how the Mets could be better in developing managers, minor leaguers, how they could do different ways of running spring training. And the fact that Billy Epler, who one of the mentors that Epler grew up with is Gene Michael, and Gene Michael is somebody that Buck managed for. I mean, Buck goes back to Casey Stengel, that coaching tree, as you look about how he learned that from Billy Martin all the way back to Casey Stengel. Think about the years of experience, baseball experience, that uh, is part of this. So, look, you guys have heard the spiel. You heard the broadcast last week. You heard the broadcast the week before. If you haven't watched the press conference, watch it. But here's my prediction. This is not just about hiring a manager. You hired someone that could get the Mets to that from that bridge, from who they were under the Wilpons to who we want them to be under Steve Cohen. And during that time, he's going to manage the club. Who knows? Maybe they win a championship. You cannot. You heard Epler say it in his first press conference. Even the best teams only have a 16 or 17% chance of winning a championship. But I'll tell you something. The Mets are going to be a better organization. Whenever the day that Buck started to the day that Buck is no longer the manager of the Mets or involved in the baseball operations in any way, shape, or form, the Mets are going to be a better organization. I think that that's a, a, I'm fairly confident in saying that, and I think you should feel that. And I think the fun part now is once we're allowed to, or at least they're allowed to talk baseball and really get their hands dirty and start to think about spring training, and there are more moves to be made. We'll talk about that. But when that really happens, in reality, it'll be really exciting to see the metamorphosis of what the Mets organization is going to be. And I predict very quickly into the you know early days of spring training in February into March, you'll see such a difference, not just from the Wilpon years, the late Wilpon years of what the Mets were, but even up to last year under the Zach Scott, you know, 
Jared Porter was here five seconds, but Jared Porter Mets that we thought were going to lead the Mets into the next you know, generation of, uh, of greatness that, that's there. You got the right guy to take on this task, and a guy that not only has taken on the task on the field, but I think is going to be a big asset about how this organization can run things off the field and certainly how they're viewed in the media. You can no longer expect crazy conversation on those post games with Buck. You could not have gotten a better person that could represent this organization two, three times a day at press conferences. He's going to make Terry Collins, who everybody loves, look like an amateur. Because that's their, everyone's benchmark about how Terry was able to navigate the media. Buck's going to do it with, with, with such mastery that it's going to be easy to see. That whole part of what the talk, the conversation has been about how the media is a problem for the manager and how they could handle the media, that part of the job, not going to be a problem anymore. Managing the clubhouse, I predict he'll do it at a high level. Strategy in-game, no problem. His bosses, well, he's got obviously some work to do because he just met them, but I predict in short order that not only will he be managing up and managing his bosses, he'll be a transitional, um, transformative, big-time figure in Mets history that will change a lot around here. And one day you're going to look to Buck Showalter's hiring as a turning point throughout this time and probably the guy they needed all along and they took the circuitous route to get there but they got there nonetheless all right let's take a quick break when we return jeff mcneil is on the trading block really i'd be careful sounds like the mets are looking to trade mcneil i have some thoughts about that we'll talk about that and more right after this two spots left so let's jump back into here now is number two on the list and it's gone a home run jeff mcneil has given the mets the lead this guy can flat out hit neil has homered in a career high four straight games man knows how to play the game stays so calm caught by a diving mcneil does it again nice catch by mcneil is he ever locked in now Yes, number two, Jeff McNeil of the New York Mets. He might be an unexpected star, but he still plays like one. He's topped a 130 OPS plus in each of the last three seasons, one of only nine players in the majors to do so. It was a short season, but he increased his walk rate, cut down on his strikeout rate, and did it playing second, third, and both corner outfield positions. This year, with the suspension of Robbie Cano, he's expected back at his natural position of second base. McNeil had a career 383 on base and 501 slugging percentage, but the batting average is the real standout. Over the last three years, McNeil has the highest average in the major leagues, hitting 319 and topping this impressive list of hitters, including Mookie Betts. His 139 OPS plus tied for 14th best in that same span. So this is a guy right up your alley, Harold, hitting for average, yeah. right? He's, he, now he's all over the field. Your thoughts on McNeil? Well, he's a great player. I think he's going to continue to grow. We, should, we may have put Mookie Betts in here, too, because they played about the same amount of games at second base. <laughs> nice. Look, the guy played 12 games at second. You know, that's hard to say this is where it's at. Now, I know we're looking at 2021, that he may be the Mets' second baseman. Oh, he's expected day. to be. Robbie Cano's out. We're projecting He goes that. back, yeah. We'll see. I don't know. But that's the only thing you can knock on him. This guy is a tremendous player. I think he's going to continue to grow. And you know what I like about him? is he's bullheaded. When he struggles, he fights it through. And he's going to want to go out there and play every day. This guy's a gamer. He really is. Hey, look, I, I think he's, uh, again, the unexpected star. Wasn't expected to be because he doesn't have that weight. They kind of, oh, we want this guy to play this position. Let's move Jeff. Let's move Jeff. Actually, everybody should move around Jeff. 
right? Yeah. <laughs> when you hit like that and you well, saw defensively, I'm sure that's what the they do in the lineup. He's hitting here and playing. Now we'll figure out who else. Right. Is. He's going to play every day. Nice thing to have. All right, we're back. Talking Mets podcast here. Final. Well, is it the final Talking Mets podcast of 2021? Probably not, because I'll, well, yeah, I'll probably get you the special edition New Year's show before the end of 2021. So I shouldn't say the final one, but anyway. So we had a chance to go through the Buck Walter press conference, and look, transformative is what this guy is going to be. He's going to transform this franchise. I think we've kind of covered all that. Now it's about getting this lockout over and getting some players into camp and having Buck show what he can do. Now, one of those players who I've always been a big fan of, Jeff McNeil, came out, our friend over at Sports Illustrated, Pat Ragazzo, and this has been reported by a number of outlets, and you've heard a lot of the mainstream guys talk about how McNeil might be a trade candidate. And Don Smith's name comes up as well, and J.D. Davis, and these are the guys who I had pegged after 2019 as core offensive players on this team, and guys that I'd like the Mets to build the offense around. They're still relatively cheap. In the case of McNeil, he does so much well. He was actually one of my, you know, he and Pete Alonzo carried that offense at times in 2019, especially in the first half when guys like Cano weren't hitting and J.D. Davis hadn't hit his stride yet, and you had to replace the Mets in there and and what have you. So uh, it was very disappointing for me when I heard that it sounds like there's a, a highly likely chance that McNeil won't be in a Mets uniform come opening day. Now, uh, rumors are rumors, and I, and, I, and I think the Mets are smart enough not to just throw Jeff McNeil away. You heard coming in from the break, the shredder. Um, and you heard MLB Network, and, and last year going into the season, this is a guy that was a top you know, five second baseman. I think they had him at number two, if you listen to that clip. And for all the reasons that you would expect he makes contact at a high level, hits for power, plays multiple positions. I mean, think about it. you got a guy who could play competently both corner outfield positions, second base, third base. Now, he's not a, a gold glove at any position, but he holds his own. And I'm sure if you gave him a first baseman's mitt, the guy will probably learn how to play it. Uh, maybe not well, but I'm sure he could learn how to play it. There's a huge value in that. And on top of it, he's not just an advanced stat guy. Like, Brandon Nimmo's a guy that we talked about last week that you have to look at the advanced stats to really appreciate his ability. He's a run creator. Well, McNeil's that too, but traditional stats really jump out. And going into 2021, he had, I think, the, the highest batting average uh, out of positional players, even higher than, like, Mookie Betts. I mean, think about that. So maybe not, not everybody appreciates batting average anymore, but when you're in the company of a Mookie Betts one of the elite players in this game, you're pretty good. Now, what was interesting about McNeil after 2019, and I think this was always where I started to have my concerns, and I hate to say I'm not totally surprised we're here with questions about McNeil, but we are. Early 2019, you basically had a version of Pete Rose. You had a guy that, in the first half of 2019, uh, let me bring this up here, hit uh, 350. Uh, He had an OPS over 900. An OPS plus, you know, in the buck 40 range, 145 range. Uh, didn't strike out a lot. Doesn't walk a lot. Didn't strike out a lot. And then all of a sudden, the second half, he transformed. 
Yeah, he had seven home runs in the first half. He was a guy I didn't expect to hit more than 10, 12, maybe 15 home runs, but hit for high average. His average plummeted. His average actually plummeted, uh, you know, 75 points. He had 276 in the second half. He still had an OPS over 900, basically the same type of OPS. His OPS plus was a little bit lower than, than the first half, but in that same ballpark, about 137. And he had 17 home, 16 home runs and 39 RBIs. He basically was Daniel Murphy. So you had Pete Rose in the first half. You had Daniel Murphy in the second half. And you thought to yourself, can this guy blend it together and be somewhere in between? Now, he still played very well during the pandemic season in 2020. Had a very good September. Had some struggles there. Had some injuries. And that's been one of the things about McNeil is the injuries. This hamstring. I think he had a shoulder injury at some point in 2020 flying into a wall. It was a knock on him coming up through the system, why he came up much older, because he had had, he had many, I think he had sports hernia at some point. He had tons of injuries in the minor leagues that held him back until he blossomed in 2018. So now you got this guy going into 2021 who Cano's out, he can play second base, he could finally just, he's got his position. You know, maybe there'll be a little moving around, but not much, and... He has this awful year, and that's the thing that I guess has me perplexed because I'm not quite sure why the year was so awful. Now, from the eye test, there's a couple of things, uh, and I'll give you the anecdotal. First off, I think you all know he had the hamstring injury in May. Not that he was hitting all that well, but he was starting to come around a little bit, I think, right before he got hurt. And even though he came back and he had a really big July, and he was really only Jeff McNeil one month last year, he had those tired legs, if you remember, that afternoon game in Cincinnati when he didn't play, and everybody was disappointed after that long, extraining, crazy game the night before. And he then he went into this terrible tailspin in August. And he just didn't look right. I, you, can't, you know, does a guy look tired? It's hard to say. You're not in his body. But when your lower legs are bad, and I think his lower legs were bad a majority of, 2021 and only he can tell you it's virtually impossible to be the elite type of player that you're expected to be let's put it that way his batting average on balls in play dropped by 50 points he has a guy that would you know be 330 340 when he made contact he was at 280 so what what did we miss here i mean the body language was bad in the field we know that there was the rat raccoon thing which i wonder how much are we making too much of this really i mean he didn't like the shift. He wasn't the only one. He, he resisted it. Uh, you know, maybe he wasn't you know, shifting and the kind of shifting the Mets did, which nobody could argue with. I criticized it early in the year. I felt like early in the year there was basically every time the ball was hit, there wasn't a fielder where they were supposed to be. But you can't argue with the defensive run saved. You can't argue with it because it, it worked. And the Mets were one of the better defensive teams in the league because they saved a bunch of runs. Now, Lindor plays a lot into that because he's elite no matter whether he shifts or he doesn't, but the shifting helped. So McNeil was wrong. I mean, Lindor came out in spring training and didn't really endorse it either, but he did it. And if he did it, everybody else should do it. And all due respect, the idea that if Lindor doesn't like this guy, he's gone. I'm not really ready to hand the organization off to Lindor. And in some ways, I mean, we talked earlier in the offseason and I endorsed it. A Lindor-Javi Baez tandem would have basically handed the organization off to those two guys. And look, talents like that, you run with, but Lindor really as a leader and his first season in New York, 
Uh, other than the fact that he's the highest paid player on the team for, well, no, actually now Scherzer is, but in terms of total dollars, he really doesn't have the equity in my mind to be dictating anything. He needs to prove that he can play at an elite level like we expected in New York. I think he has to worry about himself and certainly lead with his energy and maybe lead by example. But I'm not sure you're ever going to see the lead in the clubhouse kind of guy that maybe you thought you were getting when you traded for him. So if he wants McNeil out, I'm not ready to have his opinion be the deciding vote. Let's put it that way. So, yeah, I get it. Guy had lower leg issues, bad body language, didn't really show to be a team player in that situation. Rumors are that that still doesn't sit well with players. I don't know. You know, sometimes these former coaches that are leaking things, uh, you know, are you still going to hold a grudge with uh, McNeil through an offseason? Because of this, I don't know. It, to me, it's it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, you know, and I'm on fan graphs, and I'm looking. You know, he hit the ball a little less hard hard than he did in the past. His expected, you know, the one thing about McNeil is his expected batting average, which never really matched up to the 320. And again, these are all, I'm trying to look at advanced metrics to say, did I miss something? My eyes could only tell me so much. I'm not in his body. I'm not in the dugout. A lot of the riders aren't. So the expected batting average on those two years when he was hitting 320, 330, it was about 280. But still, you know, that's what he did in the second half of 2019, and he still hit with power. I mean, the power was, I mean, you had last year a 250 hitter without any power who made weak contact at times and had, it did, never really got hot. But you could say most of that offense never got going. So he's not alone in that. Then I go to baseball savant, and I'm like, okay, Here's somebody else trying to talk about McNeil. And again, I'm trying to dissect. Is, did I miss something with McNeil before I get to my point? So they write over at Baseball Savant, for McNeil, power is more of a question of extra bases than homers. But it looks like the lefty sprays the ball well and would be hard to defend. The rest of baseball cares to differ. McNeil is now being shifted twice as much as he was in 2018. I think this was actually, by the way, written late in the season, maybe early September. And over 50% of the time in total. So now they're shifting. Basically what this is saying is, as you got deeper in the season, McNeil's being shifted on. Third basemen are playing about six feet farther from home plate, and the shift more often, so they're taking away singles and sometimes doubles in short right. Left fielders are playing him closer to the plate than ever and stealing more doubles. Here's something the projections won't capture. McNeil will either find a way to hit his balls to the new location or will have to develop more over-the-fence power. But if he does neither, it's not likely he'll put up league average power and he might fall short of these projections. So basically, these guys are saying, these analytics guys over at MLB.com, I think it's baseball. Uh, I think this is baseball savant. Uh, it's, the source is MLB.com. It doesn't matter. Or saying the guy needs to hit more home runs. Well, to me, that's going down the wrong road, too. So what you're saying is, and I look, my eyes showed it. McNeil would scorch the ball at times in 2021 and somebody would be there. Or run it down. Now, is that shifting and learning his tendencies? I don't know. I, I think the Mets would look, is he pulling the ball too much? What I liked about McNeil is that he was a guy who could just make contact, dink, dunk. Ball goes all over. You look up every night, he's got two, three hits. Now, not everything has to be hit 105 miles an hour. He still seems to have the same exit velocity on average that he always had. You hit the ball hard, you're going to get hits. But sometimes it's about placing it well. It's about dinking and dunking and keeping the offense on its toes guys become 320 hitters not every hit is a thing of beauty so a lot of the advanced metrics are perplexing 
These guys over at MLB.com are painting a picture where they figured out how the guy hits. They figured out how to take away most of his hits. So if he doesn't hit home runs, he's toast. Well, I guess that's the second half McNeil of 2019. But okay, I'm not ready to totally do that. Not ready to totally say, you know, turn yourself into Daniel Murphy. Because I don't know if he can. I really don't think he can, to be truthful. Uh, Maybe I'm missing something. He certainly has more power than maybe I'm giving him credit for. So now I look at they're going to trade him. So obviously the things that I like about McNeil, the batting average, the versatility, the fact that he over, even if you put the, the short half a season in 18 when he brought up, the full 19 and then the smattering of 2020 and the pandemic season. He's got enough of a resume where someone's going to want to say, hey, this guy could be a good player. Guy was an all-star. You don't make that. I mean, maybe it's a, you know, sometimes people make all-star teams once in their career and it's a, it's a fluke, but you still, you have the potential. So if you're going to trade McNeil, I start to look at the offense and I'm saying, well, Javi Baez is gone. The Mets, what are they, about you know, $245 million, $250 on the payroll, $255 if you look at arbitration projections. So the payroll is pretty high. I don't, I mean, I think there's more spending. There has to be. There's still holes to fill. But how much more? You know, we're banking on Chris Bryant and, you know, other guys coming or being players for another big bat. Well, they still need another starting pitcher. They still need bullpen. Uh, are you going to go over $300 million? At some point, there's going to be a cap. So to me, if you're going to trade McNeil, well, guess what? Uh, what are you going to get back? Is he going to headline a deal for a young, controllable, you know, potentially a starter that could give you top of the rotation like a Sean Manaya or a Frankie Montas? And I know we talked about him last week, and I'm a little less bullish on him, a Luis Castillo in Cincinnati. Is that going to allow you then to hold on to your top prospects because you don't want to give up the farm? If you put McNeil as kind of the centerpiece of the whole thing, I'm not so sure I'm ready to give the guy up because, all right, you bring in a pitcher and the Mets need pitching. There's no doubt about it. And you solve. Let's say you go and you get Sean Manaya or Frankie Montas, who I think the Oakland guys to me are better than Castillo. That's my opinion. I mean, maybe there's metrics or scouting that Billy Epler has that challenges that. I, I would rather focus on the Oakland guys than... Castillo, the Reds. And that includes if Sonny Gray is available, who should cost less as a veteran. And maybe that's where McNeil comes into play. Maybe there's, you know, top, maybe they're not ready to give because there's a risk for another team saying, you know, which version of McNeil am I getting? They're betting on that he'll go back to 2020, 2019, 2018. Uh, there is also a flip side that says, well, you got, you, you got a guy who's versatile, but maybe more of a utility guy off the bench because that's how he played in 2021. So if you're going to trade McNeil, that signals to me that there's more spending that has to be done because you're going to rather spend on offense than go out and take a flyer on a Carlos Rodon or try to get a, a veteran to plug in the back end there. And we'll get a little into that before we wrap up about the, the payroll and what may be available. So uh, you got to be, again, I go back to this. You better be able to get back something of significance because if you trade Jeff McNeil for like, you know, a lower end top 10 prospect, like what they did with Khalil Lee, just to kind of build up the farm or for, for, for payroll flexibility so you can go after somebody or you trade him for a nice reliever or, you know, nothing exciting. I think that's a problem. Now, I don't think they're going to do that. 
Not, I don't think they're going to be out there trying to save money by trading McNeil. But how this McNeil situation and how that goes plays out may indicate whether or not they're in the deep end of the pool with, and the New York Post brought it up, where are they willing to go out and maybe resign Conforto on a shorter deal? Uh, he They brought up Freddie Freeman. I don't think that that's realistic. That would be interesting with the Mets going and, and really stick to the Braves, bring in Freeman and move Pete to the DH spot. You know, Nick Castellanos, I don't know how you would look at that, maybe as a DH. Again, we're assuming there'll be a DH in the National League. Because if you trade McNeil and there is no plans on bringing another big bat in, you potentially have a 30-year lineup that is suspect. You don't know if there's a DH or a pitcher, so already we'll put a question mark. Yeah, I like J.D. Davis, but he didn't have a banner year, and he's coming off, he has that hand issue. You don't know what you're going to get out of Robinson Cano. And James McCann, I think, is a nice bat for a catcher, but he's there to catch and throw. He's not there to carry your offense, despite the fact that you signed him where he's had a couple of good offensive years in Chicago. I'm not banking on those seasons. I never did. I never did. I thought that those were career years, and I thought you get a, a competent. I thought you get a guy that would give you close to what Wilson Ramos gave you offensively, but with much better defense. So you trade this guy. Well, now your offense is short. I Me, mean, pitching's better, and that's important. So that, that tells me there's plans to improve the offense through free agency. There has to be. But I'd be careful. I'm not saying this is going to go Jared Kelnick bad. I mean, it's funny. I'm more uh, when it's when Jared Kelnick was in that deal with Edwin Diaz. Supposedly McNeil's name came up. There's been debate about how serious it was. I was more worried about McNeil going than Kelnick, which is funny. And I'd feel I'd I still feel trading McNeil is worse than trading Kelnick because of the versatility, because of the kind of hitter I saw him to be, because he can be a multi-dimensional hitter. I like the guy that was a blend in 2019. I like the first half guy a lot. Look, shave a few home runs off the damn thing and give me a 350 batting average. Not going to walk a lot. I know that. It was a little bit spicy. You know, sometimes he's got that Greg Jeffries act. I know that's annoying people. It annoys me a little bit. And certainly it's going to annoy teammates. And if it gets in the way of him doing his job and being the hitter that he can be and potentially getting along in terms of complying with the defensive schemes that they want to put out there, well, then that's a problem. But now you got a manager that probably will fix a lot of that. He's not going to be afraid to fix that. And I'd like to see a Jeff McNeil who is kind of at his first career crisis in the big leagues. He's never really had any significant struggles since he's been he's brought up in 2018. Now he's at that crossroads. And those crossroads could go very, I mean, look, there's been guys who, Ben Grieve, think of a name like Ben Grieve, Bob Hamlin. These are guys who had great early success as young players and their careers tailed off. Look at them up. Look them up on baseball reference. Ben Grieve was a big time prospect and he tailed off quick. So you could have a couple of good years early in your career and you can, you could fall off. He wouldn't be the first. Want me to, you know, I don't know why Ben Grieve came up because Ben Grieve, I think because I think he was selected either before or after Paul Wilson in the draft. Uh, let me look him up. Yeah, you know, so Ben Grieve is a guy that, you know, first couple of years, guy hit, you know, 18, 20, drove in 100 runs in 2000, and at the age of 24, just fell off a cliff. One rookie of the year in 1998. 
And by 29, he was out of baseball. Think about that. By 29, he was out of baseball. So it happens. Look at Ben Grieve. I mean, is that is Jeff McNeil Ben Grieve? Look at Bob Hamlin, rookie of the year, hit a bunch of home runs. Maybe a little bit different process there. Maybe that was an outlier. But Ben Grieve was a big time, and he was a much higher draft pick than Jeff McNeil, outfielder for Oakland. So I'd be careful, you know, and if they're going to trade Jeff McNeil, you better get something of value in return, or I'd be more inclined to hold on to him. His value is low, I would think, unless you could really sell the concept of that this was an outlier year. And if you can and you can get a big package with him at the center, then that's different. But I'm skeptical. Teams are smart. They're trying to buy low on McNeil. They're not trying to, uh, to, 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 they're not trying to give the Mets value for him. I'd be surprised. I really would. All right, let's take a quick break. Final segment coming up. Let's dream a little bit. It's the it's Christmas. It's holiday week. You probably have presents that you've opened up. Did you get everything from Santa Claus or whoever delivers your presents? Well, if you didn't and you want to play a little pretend here, we'll pretend that we're going to dream a little dream. And whenever the lockout ends and free agency restarts and trades restart, what would we like the Mets to do? And if the Mets, can, if Steve Cohen can find it to get that payroll to $300 million, there might still be some big fish that the Mets can reel in. New York Post talked about it this past week. We'll talk about it. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five, because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, we're back. Final segment here, and I was reading the New York Post this over the holiday, and Mike Puma actually had an interesting, I think it's in the Post Plus, so you have to pay for it. It's five bucks a month. Again, I don't get anything out of recommending it, but I like the Post. I think they do a pretty good job, and I, I can't, you know, you got to, you got to be able to talk about what's going on in this town and what people are writing about. You can't just shut out every paid content. But one of the things that Puma brought up was that the Mets really don't have as much left-handed hitting as one time they did. When McNeil was at his best and Conforto was in the lineup and Cano back in 2019 was hitting, the Mets had a lot of left-handed juice in there. And now, yeah, you have, uh, obviously, Lindor is a switch hitter. And uh, so is Escobar. He's a swing shitter, Brandon Nimmo, and what have you. But it would be nice for some lineup balance to get another lefty bat in there. One of the interesting names he brought up is if the Mets might try to bring Anthony Rizzo into the fold. Now, Rizzo, better defensive first baseman than Pete Alonso. It's, again, assuming there'll be a DH. Moving Pete to the DH doesn't mean he has to DH every game, but you know certainly... You know, Rizzo's a guy that probably is going to need a spell. I mean, Pete would still get time at first. Much better upgrade over Dom Smith, even though Dom Smith's a decent defensive player. Anthony Rizzo's a pro. He's a champion. He's a guy that uh, I would endorse bringing in. And I don't know how much that would cost, but we're assuming, look, with with Cott's contract and MLB trade rumors taking everything that's out there, 
I think the Mets, they have the Mets right now between arbitration and what they've spent, about $255 million payroll for this year. Now, we're not going to play GM and go out three, four years and long-term contracts and things like that. Let's assume whatever the Mets do the rest of this offseason is a shorter-term thing that doesn't affect the payroll five years from now, but allows them to win in 2022. And again, we talked about Buck Showalter being a transformative figure, transitional and transformative figure, and um, part of that is winning. So you need the players to win, and the Mets still have some holes. If you're trading Jeff McNeil and opening up some payroll there and bringing back maybe your arm, it makes sense where maybe the Mets now get back into the deep end and look at maybe not so much Anthony Rizzo. I don't look at him as a big-time free agent, although I think he'll get a decent salary. Uh, You look at maybe re-engaging in Michael Conforto, potentially. Would Conforto not see the appetite for a five, six, seven-year deal? and potentially sign a one-year with an opt-out, maybe a higher AAV than the $18 million he was going to get. Maybe you get him to twenty-five plus an option. And does he come back? You know, potentially familiar s- surroundings. Again, I think you need a DH because you got Canna, you got Marte, and you got Nimmo in the outfield. So you're going to have to think about with, you know, potentially Nimmo DH, with Conforto DH. Conforto's a good defensive player, so you'd want him in there. I don't know if Conforto really fits. I think the first base situation makes more sense. And that's why trading McNeil is so interesting because if you look up and down, unless they know something about Robbie Cano that I don't know, uh, there really isn't second baseman out there on the market. I mean, I'm looking at free agent second baseman. Jose Iglesias, not a big hitter. Wilma Flores, Josh Harrison, Matt Carpenter, Joe Panic, you know, Jed Lowry, you want to go back that route? So that's why I find it so interesting that trading McNeil opens up a hole at second. I guess Escobar could play there. And then you go out and you go get Bryant to play third. I don't know how Escobar, Escobar plays second base. I don't know enough. I haven't seen him enough. I mean, he was playing third base and, 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 and whatnot. So what really is interesting to me is do the Mets have that one move left? Now, everybody keeps talking Chris Bryant who we go back to Andrew Baggerly of the, uh, out in San Francisco who covers the Giants. The Giants don't seem to be convinced that a long-term deal is in their best uh, interest with Bryant because of his athleticism and how his swing will age. But maybe the Mets feel something shorter term, maybe in the four- or five-year range with some opt-outs in there. Maybe that's something that they can do. They put Bryant at third, move Escobar to second, trade McNeil for pitching, I'd have to see, and I'm looking at Escobar right now. I'm trying to get a feel here of, of what you got. Um, Escobar fielding-wise, uh, and I'm scrolling. You know, fan graphs, it's like you go through the whole thing, and it's like it takes you forever. I mean, he presents himself well as a second baseman in terms of just the advanced metrics, and he played over 250 innings last year in Arizona, but can he play there every day? It seems like third base is the majority of where he's played and to a certain degree shortstop. So I think it'll be interesting. I think it's interesting how they're even considering throwing Freddie Freeman's name into the mix because the Yankees have been so connected to him and everybody, everybody thinks it's a fait accompli that he's going to go back to Atlanta. Uh, you want to talk about ripping the heart out of your competitor in the division, signing Freddie Freeman. The Mets could get involved in Freddie Freeman. And that's the interesting part is, I mean, the guy's probably going to look for a seven year deal. And 
you know, if a guy like Marcus Simeon got a seven-year deal, Freddie Freeman at 31 is going to get a seven-year deal. Is uh, a guy that's on a Hall of Fame track. You know, you talk about not many first basemen in the Hall of Fame. Freddie Freeman's going to make a, a case for that. Won an MVP. You know, guy that's a gold glover. Definitely somebody that would balance that lineup. Tough hitter. Had a little bit of a down year, believe it or not. His average dropped a little bit from the 340 hitting. I mean, he's about a 300. Look, he's a 300, 310. What he did in the pandemic season probably was a little bit of an outlier. But he's a guy that deserves the kind of contract that probably Marcus Simeon got. Would the Mets get involved in that? Again, I think everything really ties into kind of what they're going to do with McNeil because if you keep McNeil, yeah, you could still go and get Brian and play third base. you got J.D. Davis and whatnot. But there's so many questions right now about D.H., McNeil and whatnot that I'm not sure you could really even speculate how you could spend that final $45 million. You're going to need to sign a lefty reliever. You got guys like Andrew Chafin, Tony Watson, you know, maybe you bring Brad Hand, bring back. So you're going to get a lefty reliever. I don't think that'll cost too much. I don't know if you'll have, if you want to stay around $300 million plus get a pitcher, that's going to be hard. I don't think you could get the bat and the pitcher. So if you trade McNeil, I guess you're getting some, depending on which pitcher you bring back, which young arm and how much they cost. Maybe that's a wash. Maybe that's how the Mets are looking at it. I'm trying to figure out the McNeil trade and then the speculation. And again, it's going to be educated source speculation for Puma of the post is where they feel the Mets could get back into a Conforto slash Bryant. I don't see how Conforto fits because of the outfield. He's not a DH. I don't think, but can at DH? Is that what you're going to do? I mean, not Marte. Nimmo, maybe. I mean, maybe. You could look at that. So it'll be interesting. I guess really when you look at under the tree and going into January when this thing reboots up, I really believe how they go about starting pitching and whether they go through the trade market and are they going to trade from the big league roster of McNeil will determine whether or not they're in on a big bat. I don't think it's just they want Chris Bryant. It's how does the other pieces on the roster fit because you have Escobar and you have McNeil and then you rip it out it changes the dynamic a little bit I don't think Escobar is a guy you want at second I mean he just hasn't played the amount of innings at second that he played at third but maybe I'm, I'm missing something maybe you guys could write into the Talking Mets podcast Mike Silvat Talking Mets podcast dot com no G so anyway uh, that's it for tonight wanted to wrap up a little bit with some fun speculation Want to hear from you? What do you think? How do you want the Mets? Do the Mets do the do the Mets have it in them? Do they want to get to three hundred million? Is that really it? Uh, do they have it in them to get another? It's so hard to speculate right now because you just don't know. You don't know a lot, and the lockout is going to make it really difficult. Which really brings me, as we wrap up, to what we're going to do. So we'll have our special New Year edition of the show. We'll do a little tribute to Gil Hodges and Gil Hodges. Uh, making it into the Hall of Fame through the Veterans Committee. Got a fun guest coming up. And then what does January bring? I mean, I'm not going to sit here every week in January and, you know, do informed speculation or just speculate on who the Mets could sign. There's only so many times you can talk about Chris Bryan and Freddie Freeman and things like that. So we're probably going to have to do what we promised a while back and go into the vault or maybe bring some guests on. I'm working on some things. Obviously, we'll be talking Hall of Fame. Um, and then we're just going to sit and wait and see what happens with this lockout. And as I predicted, nothing was going to happen during the holidays. The earliest I see them kicking it back up is after the new year. 
And I think it's going to be closer to Valentine's Day before you see anything really get serious. And I, I do believe, I think the first two weeks of January will tell us whether or not spring training's in jeopardy. Because if you hear nothing by the 15th of January, then you got yourself a problem. Then then you're starting to say, now things could change on a dime and you could negotiate through the night. And I mean, they could maybe wrap this thing up in a couple of days, but I think it's something that's going to go to the 11th hour. That's my opinion on it, so... Anyway, I hope everybody had a good Christmas. A little bit of a lighter show, kind of talking about the Buck press conference and the McNeil rumor. So we had some meat, but more just an easy breezy show, kind of taking a little step back now that this wild, wild, with Buck being introduced at the press conference, this wild run from about really before Thanksgiving till now, this real push after things were so quiet for so long. I mean, we were worried about, think about how far we've come during the month of October where I had, you know, guest hosts and we had no idea where the Mets were going and we had no idea how they were going to build a roster and what kind of GM they like and, and how is that GM going to fit in and what's the direction of the team. And boy, did we get our answers pretty quick in a large affirmative. And I think, I can't overstate it. I think this hiring of Buck Showalter is so big. It's such a, it's transitional and transformative in terms of, how he's going to bring this franchise into the Steve Cohen era in a way that they really need it. Not the Sandy Alderson way, which was to get kind of him into the club or bringing in a young analytics mind like they did with Zach Scott and Jared Porter, which we gave it a try uh, here on this show. wasn't what I wanted. I always wanted an experienced manager and a big-time front office name. And although Billy Epler is not a big-time front office name per se, he has such a good... These guys come from such a strong tree... Of, of mentors that I, I think they can't not work well together and can't not be successful or at least put the chips as much in their favor to be successful as you head into the 2022 season. A lot of fun stuff to uh, talk about. Of course, you could check me out all the time at the talkingmetspodcast.com. You could send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G. Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. And you can check out our good friends over at the fan-sided podcasting network and our good friends over at RisingApple.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Have a Merry Christmas. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast next week. Next week, Stay tuned for our fun New Year's celebration on the induction of Gil Hodges into the Hall of Fame. Till then, take care, everybody.
credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.